what we look at is we look at opportunity, you know, agnostic of country, for example. And what we find is that Latin America has a massive need that is not being met, both in student housing, also in industrial, also in multifamily. So I shouldn't say both, I should say in multiple uh, segment types. For example, this multifamily trend is a worldwide trend. And you'd be really shocked, Jorge, at the lack of purpose-built, purpose-designed, large, institutionally held, you know, institutionally invested multifamily projects. Mm -hmm. It's a United States phenomenon. Welcome to XM State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XM State. Hello and welcome back to XM State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we welcome Tony DiBiase to the show. As president and head of CA Ventures Latin American Division, Tony DiBiase focuses on international investment and development opportunities. Prior to joining CA, Tony served as Chief Operating Officer at U.S. Equities Realty, a Chicago-based real estate company with operations in Latin America. In real estate for over 25 years, Tony has spent over 15 years growing operating companies and working with large-scale real estate projects in international markets. His real estate experience includes commercial management and leasing, property and facility management, retail and mixed-use properties, student housing, receiverships, startups, and business unit sales. In today's episode, we dive into the reasons why CA Ventures is increasing their presence in Latin America and Europe, and what opportunities they see in particular within these markets, the challenges that CA Ventures encounters when investing abroad and how they mitigate against them, and we dive into the company's bread and butter, the student housing sector, and discuss Tony's perspective on the future of the college industry in America. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of XM State. Without further ado, here is today's guest, Tony DiBiase. Tony, welcome to XM State. How are you this afternoon? Thank you, Jorge. Doing well, doing well, given the pandemic and all that we're facing, but happy to be alive and <laughs> business-wise and health-wise and continuing on. Perfect. Good to hear. Where are you based? Where are you joining us from? So I'm at this moment in Dallas, Texas, just outside of Dallas in the suburb in my home. Our company is based in Chicago, but I moved my home to Dallas two years ago because I'm traveling constantly internationally. And DFW Airport in Dallas is an excellent gateway for me. And the weather's a little bit nicer. The income taxes are a little bit better. And I have an Argentine wife. And she, after 15 years of Chicago winters, said no mas. <laughs> so <laughs> I, had to, I had to bring her to someplace that had a little more temperate weather. And it's the best decision we ever made, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love just, being here. You just listed some of the reasons why people are big on Texas real estate as well, right? Yes, exactly. And for good reason, you know, not to change, you know, maybe the trajectory of where you want to go on this, but it's interesting how, especially this year in the pandemic, I'm traveling quite a bit back and forth to Chicago. I usually travel once a month back to Chicago for meetings with investors, with our partners, et cetera. But the differences in how the states have handled the pandemic, and more importantly, how they've shut down the economies is absolutely dramatic. You know, Chicago right now, downtown Chicago is a ghost town, but yet, and construction is slowed everywhere. And you come here, here meaning Dallas, you know, the megaplex around DFW. And it's, you know, there's neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood that's been building and building nonstop since last year, which is interesting. And you see it in, in crazy things. You see it in the price of pickup trucks, like try to buy a used pickup truck in Texas. It's really difficult because every, and or even buy a new one. For an example, Jorge, I was in Toyota dealership looking at pickup trucks just for the heck of it. One week before Christmas, I actually had to take photographs of the dealership to send to my friends back in Chicago. I said, guess what this is? And they're like, I don't know. You look like you're in a restaurant because it was filled with people, filled wow. with people. I said, no, this is a car dealership a week wow. before Christmas. How many people buy cars the week before Christmas? And it was it was packed. I had to wait 20 minutes just to ask a question about a specific That's vehicle. interesting. That's interesting that you make the analogy or you use the example of seeing it in the car industry, but it's something that we're really seeing in, in a lot of places and you start to hear. I mean, 
when you hear talk of like a economic bubble and not that that's the the subject of our conversation but these kinds of things are what make people wonder uh, i mean where, where are we headed exactly exactly and it is dramatic you know it is dramatic if people who are in california are having a very rough time of it and understandably so and people in, in states like chicago new york also having a very rough time of it and yet texas although it was criticized early on because we opened back up early and therefore we had a little spike afterwards Think about from a state perspective, the state has been continuing to collect all of its sales tax revenue because the economy keeps moving. Restaurants are, are open. You know, stores are open. We can go to stores. We can go to gyms. We can go to restaurants. And so much of the country that isn't, not only is it hurting the people who own those businesses and the employees who work for those businesses, it's also really hurting the government by not being able to collect their share of the revenues, of the tax revenues. So they'll feel the pain a little bit later. You know, they've made these decisions and it's hurt people who own businesses and work in those businesses immediately. But 2021 is going to be a tough year for states like Illinois, California, and New York. And I don't think it's going to be a tough year at all for Texas. <laughs> states like Texas, it was a blip, yeah. a small blip, and it kept going. That's interesting. That's a, a variable or a factor within the impacts of the pandemic that we don't hear a lot about. But that's significant. It is. It is. Yeah. And will continue to be. And yeah. That along with the fact that, you know, the Sun Belt in general has been the focus of people moving, you know, more to Sun Belt states and cities. And I think that'll continue to happen also, yeah. especially yeah. in this economy where we're finding where we can work. Most people can work almost anywhere. They're going to choose smaller town living. They're going to choose temperate weather. And of course, if if they have the ability to move to a state that has some tax benefits, they'll do that as well. States yeah. like Nevada, Florida, mm -hmm. Texas. And obviously something that we've heard a lot about recently is how the impact that the pandemic has had on, on remote work. That is very evident, of course. But something that I had been noticing before the pandemic is how easy it is to move. I mean, to move in general from state to state or from yeah. house to house. My wife and I moved from Houston to Austin about six months ago, okay. and I was amazed by how easy the process was in comparison to previous moves. And sure. things like movers, hiring movers has gotten a lot better. Now you have mm -hmm. reviews. Now you have a lot of people that are offering the service. It was the first time that we leased an apartment without having looked at it before. I did the same. Yeah, I did the For same. For the first time first before. Right. I mean, it, eight years ago, it's something that you wouldn't even consider. Right? Ever. Right. You're never um, moving to a building without going there first. Yeah. And, and yes. And yeah, now the, also the, the property management has gotten so much better over the last yes. 10 years that, for example, I felt comfortable in the fact that if I had any issues that I'd be able to resolve them with them. And yes. now every, the whole process seems more transparent. Couldn't and, agree more. And yeah. seamless. Yes. And that along with technology, like you said, so people could, you could FaceTime, you can see 3D tours on your phone or on your computer and having professional management as opposed to, you know, single owned apartment where you're dealing with a guy who bought an apartment or an apartment building 30 years ago, or he hired, you know, his son to oversee his apartment. Often like what we see in Latin America, for example, is a very different thing than when you go to a building and you have a professional company managing it. You, you and, feel so yeah. much better. And like you said, that they will address any concerns that you've had because you had a rent site unseen. Mm -hmm. And the point you make on, on FaceTime, that's another big one, because if you think back and FaceTime, I mean, in the sense of staying in touch with your relationships from where you used to live, for yes. example, probably 20 years ago, we didn't have FaceTime. So when, when you made a move of that kind, it was much more of a commitment, much more of a decision. Sure. Today, it's very easy to make it because it feels like much less of a commitment, right? Yes. You can move, but you're still going to be FaceTiming and WhatsApping. You're so connected yes. with everybody that it just doesn't feel like such a difficult a big deal. decision. Yeah. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about that with some friends uh, who have college-age children and we talk about the differences. Uh, when we were in college, you know, when you called home, when I was in school back in the late 80s, <laughs> early 90s, uh, really late 80s, uh, I graduated high school in 84. 
So it was late 80s. Calling home was a big deal, and you spoke fast because <laughs> your father didn't like the phone bill. He'd say, ever since you went to school, my phone bill is $15 more a month or $20 more a month. And that was a big deal just for that, for talking, yet alone seeing each other. And now mm -hmm. when you can see each other, and, and as we've all done during this pandemic, staying in touch with our families, you know, you do the Zoom call. We've even played games over Zoom you know, with the whole family trivia yeah. games and stuff. And, and we have people in California. I'm in Texas. Most of my family's in Chicago, in different homes in Chicago. And we all get together. And I have some, my brother lives in Southern Illinois. So we all get together on Zoom and it feels like you, know, yeah. you, you have a two-hour call and you feel like you hung out for the night. And yes. And it's very recent because, I mean, I've been yeah. surprised by even this, this past weekend. I, I was meeting an old friend and he was saying, yeah, I don't know if, if I'm going to, I'm thinking about moving to Vail or moving to Tulum, but he spoke of it in such a casual manner that, yes. that I was so surprised by. Well, and, and what's interesting, Jorge, is it kind of really ties into what we do and what we're talking about, right, which is real estate, because, and this is why multifamily real estate is the trend now and will be the trend for the foreseeable future. And it's primarily because of your generation and the younger generation who are valuing experience over ownership. You know, I was raised in a decade, born in 1966. I was raised in a time when, uh, you know, my father told me when I graduated school, okay, the first thing you do, save all your money, buy a house, put a down payment on a house. If I can help you, I will. But that's your first goal. Like do everything you can to buy a house. Because once you're in a house or a condo or an apartment, once you're in in the ownership business, if you will, then you know upgrading to the next bigger house, et cetera, is that much easier. And you have a history with banks, et cetera. So my generation and before, our early adult life is all centered around home ownership, which not only limits you physically from moving, because it's not easy to do that, or cheap always, but it, it's just a mentality of, I'm going to buy a home, I'm going to sit in my home for 5, 10, 15 years, hope it increases in value, sell it, and buy another one that's a little bit bigger, because by then I'm making more money and could afford more. And the young generation worldwide isn't seeing the value in that. They'd rather have a mobile lifestyle. They would rather have an experience of living rather than an asset under their uh, balance sheet, if you will. And I've done quite a bit of research on it, and they're not wrong. You know, the younger generation isn't wrong. When you look at home ownership, with the exception of some very distinct places in the United States, like Manhattan or San Francisco, most places in the United States, the home ownership goes up at about 3 to 4% per year in terms of you know, the value of the home. What your return is after you subtract things out like real estate expenses, et cetera. So in the end, it's not a great investment. It's a forced investment, which for many young people is good enough reason to do it because it forces you to save money every month by, by paying down your mortgage. But now, because the mentality is so different, paying for what you want, receiving the amenities, the lifestyle that you want, is just as good of an experience in your life and allows you to be very mobile. And as you said yourself, moving is no longer as quite as complicated as it used to be. And so you don't have those decisions to make of, oh boy. I mean, before, just think 20, 30 years ago, air travel was very expensive. It was regulated and very expensive. Now you can, you know, you left Houston from to go to Austin. First of all, it's only a couple hour drive. But even if you left, or even if you want to go to Vail, you fly to Vail in three hours at a cost of two, three hundred dollars which in the scheme of things is not very much money. So it's no longer a, a need, really, to stay in a specific spot for a long period of time. You know, I always say that I see my friends and my family as much as I've ever seen them, even though I moved from Chicago to Dallas, because I, I travel back there so often. Yeah. And I love coming back home to Dallas, <laughs> leaving the weather and the politics behind. Yes, yeah, that's and very... And the family, for that matter. <laughs> 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 so Tony, you, you gave us some information on your on your background and your early years, but can we take a step back and hear from you what you've done in, in real estate, how you got started in your career, where you've been, and what you're doing today with CA Ventures? Okay. Wow, that's a big question. Take the rest of the podcast. Your so, story. 
Sure, sure. So I'll tell you my story. So I graduated school, university, University of Illinois, back in 1990 with a degree in finance. And it was my intention to be an options trader. Uh, that's what I studied in school. That's w- what I wanted to do. And if you're not aware, back in 1989, we had a big crash in the stock market, uh, similar to the one we had basically in 2008. So when I came out of university and was looking for jobs in the finance world, I was one year into a really bad recession, especially in finance, specifically in finance. So I was competing for jobs with people who had one, two, three years of experience who were out of work because their companies went bankrupt. I actually was made an offer and accepted the offer while I was still in university for a company. And while I was studying for the Series 7 exam, the company went bankrupt as part of the crash. So it was a a very harsh uh, wake-up call and reality into the adult world after university. So I ended up going into real estate in the property management side of the business, specifically with office buildings and with neighborhood shopping centers. So in the Midwest, throughout the, the Illinois and Wisconsin area. And I started with a small firm and went to another small firm after a year or two, became a portfolio manager where I, I was responsible for several properties owned usually by the same two or three clients, and then eventually made my way to a company called U.S. Equities Realty that was based in Chicago. And that was a, a very big company and growing in that they developed the library, the Chicago Public Library. They were managing the John Hancock Center at the time. And then ultimately, we managed uh, Willis Tower, formerly known as Sears Tower. So we managed a lot of high-profile buildings at U.S. Equities. And I went to work for them in the mid-90s or so, early 90s, and ended up working there for 17 years, becoming the chief operating officer. We grew the company. When I started with the company, there was probably 57, 58 employees. And when I left the company, there was 550 employees. So yeah, and and that was across 17 years. So it was a long trajectory. And really what made my career, Jorge, is I got sent down to Latin America, to Buenos Aires, Argentina, to start a facility management operation for Bank Boston, who was our client at the time. So when I got there, our company had had uh, four employees working for us in Argentina. We were developing a headquartered building for Bank Boston in downtown Buenos Aires. And between that year, which was between 1998-99 and 2003, we grew our business by 33 clients and 176 employees. By the time I, I left Latin America, I went back to Chicago, and then a year after became the chief operating officer. So our business expanded very fast. We basically brought the idea of facility management to Latin America. You know, it wasn't an industry. What is that? Can you spend a little Sure, more? absolutely. So facility management is... Uh, mostly facility management is thought of for an owner occupier of real estate. So property management is you have an owner, you hire an operator to bring in other tenants, whether it's office tenants or multifamily, et cetera. And the operator is the go-between between the end user of the real estate space and the group person, et cetera, that owns the real estate space. And that's what a property management operation is. Facility management's different. So that's why banks, universities, hospitals have facility managers. So they're the owners of the real estate, but they're also the the tenant of the real estate. So they need real estate executives to help them make efficient their space. They're not looking to have an investment on, or an investment return on the money that they've invested in the space. What they want is the efficient use of the space. So government agencies have facility managers, large banks who have multiple branches have facility managers. And that's what happened in our case. We were building a headquarters building for Bank Boston. They had gone through a very rapid expansion where they built 56 branches in 18 months. They had started with like 30 or 40. Then they built 56. Then they merged with Deutsche Bank in Argentina, which they received another 60 branches. So within two years, they went from having 30 branches, you know, when when Mary called with an air conditioning problem, 
they could handle it. They went from 30 branches to 150 branches within two years. And they had no idea how to organize that. How do you organize the work orders? How do you organize a purchasing department? How do you organize the accounting? And that's what I was doing at the time for U.S. equities. I was managing a portfolio of facility management clients, if you will. And it's a big business with all the big companies. So JLL has a large facility management operation. Uh, CBRE has a very large facility management operation. They're probably the largest in the world. Cushman, Wakefield, et cetera. They all have large facility management operations where the clients are the owners of the real estate and they're also the users. So we help them make this space efficient. We help them spend money appropriately. And what we're mostly concerned is, is maintaining the usability and the viability of the asset, not necessarily increasing its rent because they're not paying for it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So that's what we did. And in doing so, for example, we saved $1.1 million in our first 11 months working for Bank Boston in Argentina. We found things like taxes that were double accounted for and sometimes double paid because the branch would pay an invoice send it to the corporate office and the corporate office would pay the invoice also and there were a lot of things like this and bank boston isn't you know unique in that this happens with a lot of large organizations where oftentimes the left hand isn't quite sure what the right hand is doing and sometimes you need a professional group which is what we were at the time to organize that and i did that for quite a few years and then went back to Chicago and got more involved in the development side of our business and investment side of our business. And then ultimately started a small company of my own, focusing on consulting and development in Latin America. And then ended up with CA Ventures, where we created CA Ventures International Okay. with, with Tom Scott, who is the chairman of CA Ventures. And we started CA Ventures International in 2013. Our focus was developing student housing buildings in Latin America. And then we moved on to Europe. So we have four assets operating in Latin America, uh, three in Colombia, one in Chile, and we have one large operation in Krakow, Poland. And and within the next year, we'll be opening five more in the UK. So our, our European branch is growing very rapidly. And what percentage of CA Ventures operations, or what percentage do they represent of CA Ventures total business? Sure. It's a small percentage, actually, because we're so large in the United States. For example, every year in the student housing, student living end of our business, we're delivering eight to 10 properties. And we have four in Latin America, and we're about to have six in Europe. So it's a relatively small portion of our total business. But it's a growing portion of our business, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. Yes. And you head the Latin America division, correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So that's something that I, that I wanted to dive a little bit more deeply uh, with you in this interview. And the reason why is because growing up in Mexico, myself, that's, that's where I'm from, you, you always hear the opposite. You hear wanting to be in the U.S., not being in the U.S. and wanting to invest outside. Right. So what's the reasoning behind doing so? That's an excellent question. And I get that question a lot, Jorge, because we see a lot of money wanting to come and invest in the United Mm -hmm. States. So the way we look at this is, uh, one, it's a hedge against our massive business in the United States, right? At some point in time, and this is a good example, if the United States only had COVID, the United States would have suffered, the rest of the world would have done well. In this case, it affected everyone equally. (laughs) All around the world, all businesses have suffered during the the last 12 months here. So for us, it's a bit of a contrarian hedge, number one. And number two, what we look at is we look at opportunity, you know, agnostic of country, for example. And what we find is that Latin America has a massive need that is not being met, both in student housing, also in industrial, also in multifamily. So I shouldn't say both. I should say them in multiple uh, segment types. For example, this multifamily trend is a worldwide trend. And you'd be really shocked, Jorge, at the lack of purpose-built, purpose-designed, large, institutionally held, you know, institutionally invested multifamily projects. 
It's mm-hmm. a United States phenomenon. You, you go to the UK, you don't find a building with 300 units with a professional management company. It's very hard to find that, even in the UK. You it's go to Mexico, Spain, yeah. Mexico, you Same don't find thing. it either. It's, Mexico has like six buildings that are done well. And and they were done with a, by a very good company, uh, a company nomad that I'm sure you, you may be aware of has done a phenomenal job in Mexico City. But six buildings in Mexico City, one of the largest cities on planet Earth. <laughs> Six buildings. <laughs> so, and more are coming, and we're helping because we're we're in Mexico this year, and we're looking to start two new projects: one in Mexico City, one in Guadalajara, with a third student housing project in Merida. So, Mexico is a big focus for us, and we're not the only ones. You know, there are other Graystar, for example, is in Mexico and looking, and and there are other players in Mexico as well. And that's the reason why, because real estate is a transferable skill and a transferable product. We, meaning the United States, might be ahead of the curve in a lot of these product types, but the rest of the world wants and needs it also. The challenge, Jorge, though, is in the different countries is having the finance systems available to keep up with the evolution of real estate. So, and this is where Mexico, unfortunately, is a little bit far behind. Uh, The Mexican banks don't really understand how to underwrite properly rental housing projects. They're finally getting used to office products, and they're not quite there with residential products yet. So a lot of these projects have to be built with 100% equity. And that's different. You know, that's different than what we're used to in the States. Quite a bit different. Yeah. So in in what ways are are banks unable to underwrite these properties? Does it mean that they're unable to get comfortable with the risk and therefore offer higher interest rates? Well, exactly. So first of all, the interest rate in Mexico is higher than it is, much higher than it is in the United States and much higher than it is in most Latin American countries that are have real democracy. You know, so not Venezuela, not Argentina, and not even Brazil. But like Chile has a low interest rate. For we're hovering around four percent right now for long-term rate in Chile. Even in Colombia, we have a much higher rate in Colombia, and Mexico is like Colombia and maybe a little higher. You're looking at nine, nine and a half percent interest rate in Mexico right now, and they're comfortable with construction risk, but they're not comfortable with understanding the rental business, and that's the problem. You know, you speak with a bank, and it's and their focus is on your break-even point. Because they're used to the sales. Sales, condominiums. Condominiums. And you don't have a break-even point when you're in rent. Your break-even point is an occupancy number, right? It's not a number of units sold because you're not selling by the unit. You're trying to, you're going to wait till you lease it. So at the time you apply for a loan, you have no idea what month that it's going to be, that you're going to be at break-even point on leasing. It's a mystery, right? You, you have a guess and it's a very good guess based on, you know, our, our historical experience in other markets, but the banks have a really hard time with it. And only because it's new, you know, it'll take a little while and the banks will get there, but you know, they're 20 years behind the United States, for example, uh, Chile is an example. We're in Chile and, and we're, we're about to start a multifamily project this year as well in Chile and Chile understands the business much better than a lot of other countries. But it, it's, it's simply a matter of they never had to do it before. Developers weren't trying to build multifamily projects before. Investors weren't looking to invest in multifamily projects before. So it never existed. So it, it's not a knock. I'm not trying to say that these countries are, you know, are less than for any reason. It's just different because they've never, they've never had this product type before. So it's going to take a little bit of time to get everyone on board with understanding the business. That's, that's very interesting. And and I can uh, that the reason makes a lot of sense of why you're looking at uh, Latin America because you see it also, for example, in e-commerce is a, an example of how it first happens in the U.S. It gets adopted here in the U.S. and then it happens in, in Latin America. Then it happens in Mexico. And so if you're in Mexico, you can almost look into the into the future, into what's going to happen because you see what's what's happening there and the reasons why it's happening, and then you anticipate that it's also going to happen here. It's just going to take a little bit of time. Exactly. And Mexico is a phenomenal culture in that Mexico has a hunger, has a very big appetite for real estate specifically. You know, if you look at what happened with industrial real estate in the United States and then how it moved into Mexico, the industrial space in Mexico is very professional. Many of the leases are even denominated in U.S. dollars, especially in border towns 
Why? Is it because the Mexicans don't trust their own currency? No. It's because denominating leases in U.S. dollars opens up the business for U.S. investors. So it brings more money in, and they know that. So as they're renting to businesses who are local, convincing them to nominate the lease, denominate the leases in U.S. dollars is perfect for their business. And Mexico caught on to that very quickly, and the industrial business in Mexico is far ahead of all other Latin countries. Maybe with the exception of Brazil, something because of the size of Brazil, but Mexico being a major manufacturing country, and also with the I-35 corridor between you know Texas and Mexico, it's it's amazing. For example, I, I just learned in the last year, year and a half, that the U.S. Customs Office works in Monterey. And so as they manufacture and load trucks in Monterey, Customs patrols the trucks, puts a lock on it and a number, and the truck can drive right through the border. Doesn't have to stop and waste four hours once it gets up north to the border. News to me. And it just shows you at how efficient the two countries are working together to bring goods back and forth between the countries. So, and then that has an effect on the real estate, obviously. So the same will happen with multifamily. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about Latin America the way you talk. It shows, it shows that, that you appreciate the countries and the culture, which is not something that that I hear a lot here in, in the U.S. Again, because for this for, for similar reasons that, that I mentioned earlier, a lot of U.S. investors, they stay here and, and look in the U.S. and don't look sure. at all. Sure. Well, you know, it's a big country. The United States is a big country and there's a lot of opportunity. And in general, I would say that most of us in the United States have an aversion to risk. And when you look at Latin America, you know, you, you see risk. You see political risk. You have currency risk. So it's it's uneasy. And this is where, for example, industrial real estate in Mexico eliminated one of those risks by eliminated currency risk. But that's what we see. And when we see a lot of volatility. But I guess you still have currency risk, even if the asset uh, I mean, is owned in, in U.S. dollars, because, I mean, the people there, the people who work there, ultimately exchanges in, in pesos. Right. So that's tough to eliminate. But exactly. And here's the reality. There is risk everywhere. So it's just a matter of getting comfortable with it. And that's something that I would like to see our universities do a better job with. Because quite honestly, I don't think we're well educated on identifying risk and overcoming risk, or if you will, hedging risk. And if you look at, for example, our legal system. So growing up in Mexico, right? If you were to sign a lease in Mexico, I don't know if you have. Were you in Mexico? Did you ever lease an apartment? Not personally, not personally. Okay. So if you sign a lease in Mexico or Chile or Argentina for that matter, it's probably about 12 pages. Right. And for a commercial lease. Now, of course, if you sign an apartment lease, it, it might be three or four pages here in the United States, too. But usually not. Usually it's a little longer. But a commercial lease will be about 60 pages here because our attorneys are so risk adverse. We're worried about everything. We try to solve everything inside of a legal document. And in Latin America, we don't even think that way. Like It's just, you know, we think that, okay, well, if there's a problem, we will deal with it when we come to that problem, which is how actually it works in mm -hmm. the United States. Really. Yeah. Even here, you have a lease, but for example, in pandemic, if you don't pay, you're getting the bank of force to close on your mortgage. Well, if you have a pandemic going on and you don't have tenants, yes, the bank could default you on your mortgage, but more likely than not, because of the pandemic, you're going to sit with your bank and you're going to negotiate and you're going to work it out. We didn't need to work that out in a legal agreement. 10 years ago when we signed it, we'll work it out when we we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But, but it's such an American thing to be extremely risk diverse. And that's what we do as a company of CA Ventures is how we look at Latin America, how we look at Europe is we look to change our perspective on risk. And once you see past it, you see opportunity. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned CA Ventures does business in several different countries and in several countries uh, you have only a few amount of projects. So it's not as if you set base in one country and then establish the presence there for a long time before moving on to the next. So it seems like that you're setting your foot in, in different places relatively at the same time. So how, how do you do so? Because every country is different, has its own rules, its own relationships. Yeah, that part's not easy. And especially in Latin America, because there's very little consistency uh, either in the law or in currency 
or in banking operation, for example, between them. So in Latin America, we've, we're very, very careful which countries we've selected to do business in. So we're in Chile and Colombia now, and we're about to be in Mexico. And the only other country really on our list would be Peru. Argentina, Brazil, for us personally, we're not interested in those countries at this moment for a variety of reasons. You know, Venezuela, no, Panama, no, because it's a little too small in terms of what we're looking to accomplish. So we've had to be very selective. And part of that is because of, of our experience and our careers, mine personally, in the past in these countries. And part of it is the opportunity and where they are in the arc of needing the projects, the type of projects that we're building and bringing there. And in Europe, it's the same. So Europe, we went to Poland first because we had a partner in Poland who's also based in Chicago, who we've known very, very well. And they've had a business for over 30 years in Poland. So they know the market really, really well. And we felt very comfortable with them as a partner. In the UK, it's a you know, very evolved market, uh, ready for student housing, ready for purpose-built multifamily, which they don't have a lot of now. We're looking at Italy, we're looking at Spain, we're looking in the Netherlands. So those are the markets that we're focused on. Europe's a little bit different because with the exception of Poland, who's not part of the European Union's currency, they're part of the European Union, but not on their currency. And actually, that's one of the reasons why we like Poland. So for example, being part of the European Union, students can travel back and forth. Young people can travel back and forth very easily to Poland. But being that Poland never took the euro as its currency, Poland has the zloty. Right now, Poland is cheap. Poland is a very, very efficient market to be in, to rent space, to go to university in. The Polish universities were very, very smart. Starting about 20 years ago, they started offering programs in English. Because if not, then they would only have the Polish market to educate. So you can go to Poland for a fraction of the cost, for example, than it would be going to school in Spain or the UK, for example, and get a degree in English. And a lot of Polish universities are very, very highly rated. And it's just a very unique place to be in the world, Eastern Europe. So the European Union helps us in that there's a lot of similarities with currency in a lot of the other countries. There's a lot of similarities with laws. And then, of course, you have the, your local uh, permitting departments and towns that you have and cities that you have to deal with on what's allowed to be built. And some are much easier to deal with than others. Yeah, but I would expect, uh, like what you said, that when you enter a new market, you do so through uh, somebody with a local presence. I mean, uh, for, yes. for me, if somebody asked me, if, somebody, if a U.S. investor asked me how to develop or how, how to break into Mexico... That would be my, my recommendation would be to, sp Absolutely. to speed up your learning curve by partnering with somebody who already knows how to do stuff there. To speed it up and soften it. <laughs> now you're going to have a hard learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> for Very sure. hard learning curve. Same, for sure. as a, same as for a foreigner coming to the United States, right? If you don't know the ways in which the United States work, you're going to learn the hard way. <laughs> yes, but probably less so. And the reason why I think that is because in U.S., the rules tend to be more clear, laid out, first of all, open and, and more followed. And people do more so things by the rules and the culture thinks, tends to also to be more open to foreigners. Yeah, right. they're yeah. A very international culture and Mexico, for example, it's, communities tend to be a lot more close. Yes, that's true. It's very parochial. You have to know the right people. But once you do, you're usually able to move pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And you're right. You're right. The United States is, is a little different in that way, which doesn't make us better. It's just different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for sure. So let's talk a little bit more about student housing, because this okay. is still CA Ventures' main product, right? Correct. Yeah. Student housing. So how has the product performed historically and over the last 10 years or so? Has it, I mean, we know multifamily is strong. I mean, we've had in, in this podcast a lot of multifamily guests. Uh, we haven't had a student housing guest before. Are the assets similar? How are they different? Very similar. The, uh, the difference being is the markets have to be much more specific. So we focus on state schools and large schools where we have at least 25, 30,000 enrollment, 30,000 people enrolled in those universities. So the upper tier, you know, maybe the first one or two tiers of schools 
And that's where our, our markets have done very, very well over the last 10, 20 years. And why? Because these schools continue to attract students, even though you know it's becoming more and more expensive to go to university. They're good schools. They're uh, attracting high academic students, academically minded students, if you will, rather than like the party schools. Although we've built that s- some of those as well. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And and I would say the big difference has been how you look at risk for that university. So really, we're underwriting the university. We're not underwriting the city or town it's in. So for example, if I were to tell you, hey, are you interested in building multifamily in Purdue, Indiana? You might say no. Like, what's there? Well, when you know that there's a university there or where Notre Dame is, then you become very interested in student housing. The difference is without the university, there is no secondary market. Where with multifamily, you're underwriting the city or the geographic area. And does that area have growth? And what type of growth? And are people moving to that area because jobs are prevalent? Or people moving away from that area because it's a dying area? For example, universities are attracting 20,000, 30,000 students each and every year. And especially schools that have a long track record of that. So the markets themselves may be odd markets, when you look at multifamily, because they're smaller towns, because in the United States, our universities are usually outside of major cities. This is another difference with Latin America, for example, and with Europe, where the major universities are usually in major cities, Mexico and Colombia and Chile, they're all in, in usually the capital cities. So for, for us, it's been a very big focus of our work since 2004, since the company started and continues to be an excellent investment. It's almost gone full circle where it's it's become so evolved. You know, you have student housing specific REITs that invest in in only student housing in North America. So it's a very evolved financial product as well as a real estate project. And it has performed fairly well. I mean, compared well. to family. Yes, because you you constantly have demand. The areas where we find that have maybe downward pressure on rents or areas that struggle to meet full occupancy are because of more competition, not because of the lack of students, right? It's, it's that there were only four or five class A student housing projects in that town and developers came in and, and built 10 more. So now there's 15. Yeah. Um, the same as you have in every city, you know? And that's a tough thing to measure appropriately is when is overbuilding occurring, right? Because you look at a market and you're researching it the same time I'm researching it, right, Jorge? So you may make the decision to go into that market for all the right reasons, and I may make the decision to go in that market for all the right reasons, and for other people also. And then our building started around the same time and we have a problem. And yeah, that's a very good point. And also I'm sure overbuilding happens more gradually in a city because it's such a large market than when you're dependent on a university and one single project can represent a portion of the student population. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's happened. That's happened. But in general, it's been a very, very good business. But but sooner and why? Because there's been a lack of supply for what students needed. You know, we got into the business in 2004. Our first purpose-built development was 2007. We built a tower in University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And why? Because students were living back then, they were living in small apartments and garden-style apartments far from campus in three flats, six flats, 12 flats. But nobody built an entire tower simply for student housing that wasn't owned by the university. And nobody likes to live in the university system usually. You know, it's very small. You know, you're in six foot by six feet, cylinder block with a roommate. If you behave poorly or make poor decisions, which young people tend to do from time <laughs> to time, it affects your academic career. So it's, it's, that's a serious thing. You, know, you get in trouble in student housing when you're living on, on campus at the university, you might get kicked out of school. If you live with us, and you do, and you make poor decisions. We'll kick you out of your apartment, but you still have a, you still have an academic career, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that's the difference. And we can offer different amenities, etc. 
So what's your outlook on college as a whole and in, in, in the long term? And the reason why I ask this is because this is a topic that, that you see a lot on social media and on the internet, for example. I mean, a lot of people consider the college in the long term to have an uncertain outlook. So I'm sure that as a company, you've put some thought into that. Yes. Yes, we have. And I think the market is not never ending. Right. I think there there will be already we see that there's some slowdown in student housing because it's starting to get built up to the demand that it has today. Moving forward with universities, I think universities have a really big and important struggle that they're going to have to get through over the next decade, which is maintaining their costs and or lowering their costs of education. It's too expensive. It's simply too expensive. And it's crazy that so many young people are coming out of school with $60,000, $80,000 of debt or more and have five, $600 a month payments on their debt for the first 10, 20 years of their adult life. And that's, that's crazy. And, and it's with the exception of like high level Ivy League, Ivy League schools, you see the return on the investment for an education isn't what it used to be. And it's not that education isn't valuable. It's the cost of it. It's just too high. So universities have to address that and have to find a way to make it more affordable. Uh, the answer is not free education because that, that doesn't work. It doesn't work anywhere because uh, that's, there's no free. Someone's paying for it. Uh, and it has to be that costs are contained. And that's going to be in a very, very important issue. But something we've learned this year, Jorge, is that online learning is not nearly as effective as in-class in learning. Okay. And students being with each other and being with a right. teacher. So universities aren't going away anytime soon. And if you think about a technology, universities have had the technology to provide online learning for 10 years or more. This is the first time they've had to really, really use it. But they've always been, you know, there's always classes you can take online. We, we I'm sure, take classes online. Mm -hmm. I know I've done master class and things like that before. Mm -hmm. It's not the same. And it just isn't the same. But e even if the learning could uh, approach some kind of similar to in-class learning, the experience of college, I mean, that's Canada, that is completely different. For example, I have two younger siblings that are, I have three younger siblings, but two of them are in, in college right now. And they're both uh, doing remotely. And it's not nearly the experience that they wish they could, they were having. Yeah, exactly. I have the same with my nieces and nephews. And that's sad. And it's really sad. And by the way, that's something that's also very United States, right? Because we don't value that in the same way in Latin America. We're just starting to. Because many, because universities are in major cities, a lot of people stay with their parents or with relatives while they go to school. And it's only in the last 10, 15 years have students started to demand living apart from their family at a young age. And that's our opportunity. And it's amazing when we see the, for example, I'll, I'll give you a really a 10 second story of the big difference in Colombia versus the United States. So in the United States, your parents drop you off at university. They'll come back maybe once before Thanksgiving for parent day. And then they don't see you until Thanksgiving. So they drop you off in August. They come back in September, October for parents weekend. And then you see them at Thanksgiving. Then they go back to school and, you, and parents, maybe you'll visit them once during the year. Besides parents say, maybe, maybe not. And that's it. In Colombia, parents are coming every month. <laughs> They're coming every single month. It's amazing. We, yeah. I could open up a hotel for parents and it would be a good business. <laughs> they come every month. And so many of them will bring the empleado, the, the maid yeah. Yeah. from their house, to our student housing building to do the laundry of their kids and to clean his apartment for him. <laughs> unheard of in the united states right? yeah, unheard of in the united states but to me it sounds like the most normal thing <laughs> <laughs> of course of yeah grew up that way and uh yeah. it's a good thing right i wish i had that mm -hmm. uh, i was lucky enough to have grandmothers who would send me you know uh care packages and my mother always sent me a care package but nobody came to my apartment cleaned it that's for sure <laughs> so so that's the difference you know there's a yeah. cult a massive cultural difference too that we're overcoming in latin america But it's growing because students see, because of social media, students see and want the experiences that they see other people having in other parts of the world. 
And that's so much a part of our growth, and, right? And it's, it's independence, right? Of, exactly. I mean, that's the appeal that and that we have here in the US. Of that's why we want to move from our parents' house. And in Latin America, it, traditionally, it hasn't been an option because like, like you mentioned, we don't even have multifamily buildings. So unless you can afford to buy an apartment, you're right. going to leave with their parents. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So a very different world. But it's a world that's merging, right? And converging on itself. So it's very a world that's seeing, and, and they want the same experiences as other people have. And that's our job is to bring that to the market. Very interesting. Very interesting. Tony, so are you ready for our fire round? Absolutely. Perfect. What the book that has had the most profound impact in your life? I would say How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I read it when I was 13 and I've read it maybe three times since. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. What's the single most important skill to have as a real estate developer? An open mind to solve problems. And only because you said developer. It's just a very different skill set if you're in, an, in other parts of real estate, like accounting or brokerage, for example. But as a developer, you're dealt with a multitude of problems and you have to find solutions. And some of them are vastly different. Some relate to money. Some relate to politics of the ge you know, geographical area you're developing. Some relate to personnel issues. And a lot relate to construction and or architectural issues. So you have to have an open mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer to the the famous analogy of the like orchestra, the the conductor, the conductor. Yeah, absolutely, that's no what order. a real estate developer is. He's yeah. a conductor. So, yeah. and you have to remember what the overall tune is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what's that's what's important. Mm -hmm. What's a real estate trend that you're paying attention to? Multifamily and how people are living because I, it's a long term trend. You know, I'm seeing it even in people my age. You know, owning a house is no longer with the same importance as it used to be. People are even happy renting houses. So we're, we're very focused on the rental market in general mm -hmm. for lifestyle purposes. Okay. Tony, a parting piece of advice that you have for our audience? Um, yes. Uh, what I would say is uh, what I've been very fortunate to learn in my career because of my traveling internationally is ha have an open mind. And especially as Americans, we tend to think that we know the best way or the right way to do things because we might be ahead or it seems we're ahead in certain areas. But what I find is the, the more language I learn, the more cultures I learn and work with, the more I learn that there's more than one way to solve a problem and solving the problem is the goal. So any skill you learn to solve problems is a good skill. And you learn that by traveling and by being in different cultures and understanding different points of view when we stay in our own bubbles it's not healthy very true life starts where your comfort zone ends i completely agree well said yeah well thank you very much tony it's been a pleasure i had a lot of fun and i learned a tremendous amount well thank you thank you very much for being here no it's my pleasure jorge take care you too bye-bye